Well, join me in Titus chapter 2, please. Uh, Titus chapter 2, we'll hear a little more at the conclusion of our service here from the Merrills. And uh, be sure to stop by, let them know how much you appreciate their ministry, and uh, let them know you'll be praying for them as they continue to travel from church to church and ministry to ministry to encourage uh, with music as well as the message of the gospel. So this morning, we're going to continue our series that we started a few weeks back with uh, Hijacked, looking at rescuing the truth. We started with, um, we looked at stolen identity and how the culture around us has really skewed and messed up our, our placement in life. Like, who am I and, and uh, why am I here? And really helping direct our attention to our, identi- our identity being found in Jesus Christ and all that we are because of him. Well, this morning, we're going to continue that thought in that series, and we're going to look at our true purpose for living Because yet again, this is something that we have let our society really redefine what is our purpose for living. They have definitely skewed our why we do what we do. And when we even look at this, we find that they have stolen our knowledge of living for the sake of the kingdom. And so what has happened is it's not necessarily always just the unrighteous who have changed our thoughts and processes of purpose, but even churches who have watered down the gospel, they have really transformed and lost the eye, the whole purpose for living for the kingdom. Then there is the thought of how we're pushed into a comfortable Christianity or maybe a distorted call to follow Christ. If it works in my agenda, if it feels comfortable for me, then it's something I'll do. But that's a distorted view of following Christ. And so we must realize that our true purpose and our true role is is not about us, but rather for the sake of the kingdom. And so here in just a few moments, as we look for Titus uh, chapter 2, the instruction from Paul to this pastor and really to the congregation in Crete, Uh, the island of Crete, he's writing this letter to encourage Titus as a pastor and to the people there in the congregation. And so we pick up in verse number one, and he says, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged man be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience, the aged woman likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, Continuing verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptedness, gravity in, in sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us, to redeem us from all iniquity 
and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. This morning, we're going to take a few minutes here. I wish we really could take some time to dig into Titus chapter 2. It's one of those messages or really one of those texts that could be divided into three or four portions. But today, we're going to come into three different sections of importance as we study for the sake of the kingdom. Father, we need your guidance this morning as we look at this text. We express our full dependency on you for your wisdom and your leading. I thank you for where we have been uh, carried to this morning with the direction of the cross, the direction of who we are because of you, and we thank you for the time of worship. But now as we set ourselves to be attentive to your word, I pray that you would calm our spirits and that you'd clear our minds, help me as your messenger not to, to get in the way of what you want to communicate. I pray that I would humble myself before you and be used by you in such a way to help us as a group to take steps of growth. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul writes this letter here to Titus, and it is one that is giving instruction to the church that was facing a lot of pagan influence in their, in their culture, in their society. And so he's going to reference in chapter number one some clear instructions to the pastor, and then he's going to take a little bit of a transition in chapter two about speaking to the congregation and the content of this letter serves as really a great tool to the church or to a congregation that can really best prepare themselves to be the most effective they can in being a witness of the gospel for the unrighteous. And so in our text today, there's this shift of focus, and it's really important for us to see this, this message to be a healthy church. And there's a lot of elements that go into what does a healthy church look like or how, does it, how is it built, how is it shaped and put together. And so we find here right at the very beginning that we've got this God-given purpose to live out. And that is even not only first century Crete, but that is even in now in our day and age. How do we live out purposeful living and what does that look like? So right here in the middle of what Paul is writing, he deals with different gender and, and age groups in the church, and he gives three reasons for how we can live holy lives or why we should live holy lives. And these reasons have nothing to do with a benefit to us. And so often we're motivated by what benefits us. Now, obviously, obedience to the will of God and direction of God and, and obeying his, his, his commands, that brings blessings into our life, but that doesn't become the sole motivator of why we do what we do. So Paul shows us that living out our purpose for the sake of the kingdom looks like this. Verses 1 through 5 is to honor the truth of the gospel. In verse 1, Titus is, uh, is being commanded here in the congregation, speak thou the things which become or are suitable to sound doctrine. So right away, he is to be attentive to teach and to preach in accord with what is truth, what is sound. This carries the idea of speaking the true gospel just in ordinary conversations that we would have. The ordinary conversations that you have from day to day in different places with different people. In, in the original language, this is a present imperative. So it's in the it's a president, or excuse me, a present verb that is helping us to understand that this is something that needed to happen and that it was going to continue to happen, but it's also an imperative. So it was a command. So this was going to be something that he did and did often. 
So to the congregation there in Crete and also in, to the congregation today, this is not an option for us. This is something that we live out. The Bible really never disconnects doctrine from duty or truth from behavior or action. Like they all go together. What we believe causes us to act. And so because of what we believe with sound doctrine, it causes us to live it out. It was a saying from Bob Jones III, and, and um, it really helps us to understand that what we believe motivates us to action. In chapel, he would always have the students repeat after him that the most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. And so if we honestly believe that, that motivates us to action. There are other things that motivates, motivates us to action. I mean, you ask yourself, does it bother us that there are 1.5 million people who speak over 6,600 different languages that do not have a full Bible in their first language? Like you go to the museum, the Bible of the museum in Washington, D.C., as we did this last spring, and you walk into the, the room there where they have all of the Bibles in the languages, and you begin to grab one that is yellow, and you start to flip through the pages that are completely blank. And you close that and put it away, realizing that's just one of 6,600 plus languages without a Bible in their words. And, and then the reality of that is harsh because we have missionaries who are going all around the world who are trying to reach with the gospel, but they're spending so much money, energy, and time in places that maybe already have a gospel message while the part of the world has nothing is being totally forgotten. And so for us, that motivates us. Like, what do we do about that? And how do we, how do we become a part of that? And of course, we sit in our American churches and we argue over which English text of the TR we want to use with the original manuscripts while there's 6,600 languages that don't have one part of the Bible translated for them to understand, not even the phrase that God so loved the world. And so the harsh reality is that we have a responsibility in living holy with great purpose is that we would honor the truth of the gospel. Does it upset you that people still to this day, even though they have many tools and many teachings at their fingertips, they take God's word out of context and they use it to preach their man-made traditions and their man-made doctrines? Like that should bother us, that there are people who would have the audacity to take a crowd and teach and put through a message that is totally out of context from God's word especially in a day when we have the teachings and the tools right there at our fingertips to help us to better understand God's word. So Paul is going to use the next three verses, two, three, and four, to instruct the seasoned men, the seasoned women, um, the young women as well here, to, of how to live that out. In verse number five, he concludes this instruction with a reminder to act in this way so that, quote, that the word of God be not blasphemed. The word blasphemed there is, is not to give any reason to dishonor God's word. And so we must ask ourselves this, is my life dishonoring the truth of the gospel? And really only you can answer that based on the life that you live, not in secrecy, but the life that you live out in public. Not the life that you live in the, in the four walls of your local church, 
but the life that you live out with your coworkers and your neighbors and your family and your buddies and your classmates and, and people that you rub shoulders with on a, a day-to-day basis, are you honoring the truth of the gospel? Then verses 6 through 9, Paul is going to really hit on a second aspect in verse number 8 of how we should live out on purpose. And he says we must live in a way that is going to silence the oppositions of the gospel. Really, Paul gives the heart for what he wants to clearly communicate when he says in verse 8, so that they may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. The ones who are contrary, the ones who are in opposition against the gospel, against the life of Christ, against the miraculous work of salvation, we must live a life that quiets the critics. What is sad, what is, sad is that more than its fair share, the church endures through more opposition within its walls sitting in the pew than it does necessarily outside of the walls. That opposition can be strong from time to time. It can be discouraging to the, the message and the, and the vision of a church. It can be something that really tarnishes the name of Christ and something that blemishes the gospel message moving forward. But Paul is not even writing to a a messy church. That's the book of Corinthians. He's writing to a church in Crete who had a a vision on target, and he was just reminding them to be an effective witness through the gospel in their community there in Crete. And so Paul is going to warn about this opposition that they would face against these pagans. Pastor J.H. Crowell, he was about 16 years old, and the story is told that he sailed on a shipping vessel where he was the only Christian on a crew of 12 people. Now, before leaving his mom, he promised to meet her three times a day at the throne room of grace. So he would go to prayer, and she would go to prayer, and they would meet there in spirit. And so regularly, he went below the the deck, and he would pray out loud, and he just thought he must do this and keep his word. Well, his fellow sailors mocked him, and they threw wood at him, and they poured buckets of water over him, but could not put out the fire in his soul. And so they tied him to the mast, and they whipped him, laying 39 stripes on his back. But still, three times a day, every day, he'd go down, and he would pray. Finally, they tied a rope around his body and threw him overboard. Now, he swam as best as he could, and when he took hold of the side of the ship, they pushed him off with a long pole. At last, his strength gave way. And certain that he was about to die, he prayed out loud that God would forgive them. And he called out, send my body to my mother and tell her that I died for Jesus. Well, they finally pulled him out on the deck, and they left him for dead. Miraculously, he regained his consciousness And all of a sudden, with those other sailors, conviction began to seize their hearts. Before nightfall, two of them were gloriously converted. And inside of a week, everyone on board, including the captain, put their trust in Jesus Christ alone and was saved. Turn the opposition's criticism into curiosity. You see, too often, our lives are just like that pastor's. We're just so overwhelmed by the persecution of verbal attacks or hitting brick walls or even just the whole trials that we face that we begin to become the loudest complainer in our office building or we become the biggest problem causer on our neighborhood block or we become the most negative person that people sense being around us 
And all of a sudden, we have squelched any powerful gospel message, and instead of silencing the opposition, we've only fed them more ammo to attack your so-called Christianity. You see, the world loves it when big names fall, either because of immorality or just denouncing the faith. And they are many. And by the way, very disappointing for us to see it happen, but our faith is not in those men and women. Like my trust is not in them. They're just as feeble as I am, and they're going to have their ups and downs. And unfortunately, the enemy can get at them and they fall. And when they fall, they fall pretty drastically. You know what the enemy in the world does is they mock and they laugh. They ridicule. They're no longer silenced. Their criticism has been fed and it begins to burn even hotter. So our life tomorrow, today, and moving forward must be a life that silences the critics, that takes their criticism and turns it into curiosity. A whole boatload of people, 12, found Jesus Christ. I thought boatload would be kind of fun to say. But a whole boatload of 12 people found Jesus Christ because one man said, I'm going to take my gospel that God has changed my life with and live it out no matter the opposition I face. And then third, we move ahead because of time. Look at verse 10 through 15. We see that this purposeful living, living for the sake of the kingdom, is that we make the gospel attractive by the life you live. The gospel is offensive. Let's just clear, cut, dry. Like It is offensive message. But the messenger that God uses and calls should not be the one offering the offense. We should not be the one that rouses people up. We should not be the one that causes people to turn away. For the life that we live should cause them to see and want something different. Paul gives us this third way to live out our purpose in verse 10. He says that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. This word adorn comes from the Greek word that really refers to making something beautiful. It's taking something ordinary and making it extraordinary. It is finding this something very beautiful, adorning, and special. So what is our primary message about God to the unsaved? When you speak to somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ, where do you go first? Often we want them to know that he is an all-powerful God, all-knowing and that he is all-present. Sometimes we want them to know that our God is eternal, he's sovereign, he's never changing. We want them to know that he's the creator and sustainer. Like those are true and good things to communicate. But the main attribute that we want the unsaved to know about our God is that he is the savior and that he loves them and wants to save them from their sin. So how do we show that and how do we tell that? How will we, how will we do that if we don't live it? it? You know what it means when somebody tries to tell you one thing, but they live something different. The hypocr- hypocrisy just drips off of them, and we really want no part of that. I'll never forget a youth workers conference probably 15 years ago, and a pastor was uh, there at the youth workers conference in the wilds of North Carolina, and they had breakout sessions, and... I remember one of his breakout sessions was healthy eating habits and good exercise to help you in ministry. And so when they introduced the speaker for that, um, I took one look and said, I don't think that's the guy I want to hear eating habits and exercising tips from because he wasn't living it. 
Now, we know what that looks like. Uh, you know, I'm not going to, uh, well, I'm not going to give you any more examples. I probably hurt somebody's feelings already. But the idea here is that if we're going to tell people about the saving power of Jesus Christ, which has transformed us, we have to live that out. Like, we have to make sure that that is, that is something that people clearly see from us. And I'll be honest with you, that's what I, I love about Parkway. Like, that's what I just love about the people that are here that I have the privilege to shepherd and to partner with you in ministry. Because you just show that there's a change in your life. And you're not perfect. You're far from perfect. Like your diary is full every week of how you've fallen. I get that. My two volumes every week are full too. But the reality is, is we're doing this life together. And we're just trying to be more like Jesus Christ. Sometimes we take some strides forward and we're like, yes. And then we take five steps back and we're like, what happened? What in the world? But I know that when we gather together as a church body, it's not us four and no more. It's not like hurry and close the doors so that we can have our secret meeting of just our group. You are loving of your community. You are wide open to different people. You just want people to come, to sit beside you, to learn about your Jesus and to love this life called Christianity just like you do. And you are living out the gospel. But this morning, when we look at this text, we're reminded of some really important things that help us to, to be really focused on our purpose. Because the truth is, as we leave today, the society and the world that we live in is going to continue to try to skew our idea or our definition of living for purpose. How they have defined it is in a lot of different ways, very contrary to what Jesus told true followers of him. When he said, take up your cross and follow after me. He said, this is going to be a matter of dying to yourself. This living for Christ is not about great gain or benefits for us. It's about what God wants to do through us living for his glory. You ever wonder why the moment you trusted Christ as your savior, you didn't just die and go to heaven? Like, wouldn't that be a lot better? Like, man, just take me. I'm tired of struggling. Just get me up there. But the reality is, is he's left you here for great purpose and reason. And that is to live for the sake of the kingdom. And that is to take a hold of the gospel and to live it out. Don't back away from the truths of the gospel. You stick with that which is important that is taught straight from God's word. You have discernment to choose what is God and what is man. And what you see is man-made stuff, you can weed it out. And you take what is God stuff, and you chew on that for a while. There's so many people out there that use all of their time and energy on petty things while a lost and dying world around them doesn't hear that Jesus loves them. And Christians want to fight over so many things within the church realm and they want to disagree with the church up the road and the church across the street and the church in another state. And they want to have all of these disagreements so that they can feel better about themselves. And the truth is, is those are petty little things that can't distract us because there's so much more that we've got to grab a hold of and live passionately for. Now, in World War II, there was um, missionaries named Herb and Ruth Klingen. And their young son was with them, and they spent three years in a Japanese prison camp in the Philippines. Now, in his diary, Herb recorded that their captors 
murdered, tortured, and starved to death many of their fellow prisoners. The camp commandment, his name was Konishi. He was hated and feared by everybody in that prison camp. And Herb wrote in his diary, he said, Konishi found an inventive way to abuse us even more. He increased the food ration, but he gave us with unhusked rice. So if you would eat the rice with its razor-sharp outer shell, it would cause intestinal bleeding that would kill us in hours. So we had no tools to remove the husks, and doing the job manually by pounding the grain or rolling it with a heavy stick, it consumed more calories than the rice would have ever given us back. So it was a death sentence for all the captives. But before death could claim them, General Douglas MacArthur and his forces liberated them from captivity. That very day, Kanishi was preparing to slaughter all of the remaining prisoners. Pretty incredible thought. Well, years later, Herb and Ruth learned that Kanishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a Manila golf course. He was put on trial for his war crimes, and he was hanged. But get this, before his execution... He professed conversion to Christianity, saying that he had been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries he had persecuted. Huh. Righteous living always gives credibility to the gospel message that our life can convey. Righteous living. There are a lot of people who have gone before us who didn't have most ideal situations. But we get to sit in some of our comforts of today, not yet facing major persecution, but are we set on living holy lives? Are we set on living for the sake of the kingdom? Don't let society hijack our purpose. Let's take a hold of it. And remember that our God-given purpose is to go and make disciples to reach them with the saving power of Jesus Christ. So let's live out our purpose for the sake of the kingdom.